You know, it gives me a great pleasure to welcome our guest here tonight for the session on the Latin American left, opportunities, challenges, and setbacks. And there really couldn't be a more timely moment to do this with this election of the right populist Javier Millet in Argentina, really quite an earth-shattering thing that reflects you know, I think um, trends far beyond Latin America, the tenor of our times, as it were. And so there couldn't be a better moment to look at the future of the left in Latin America in the face of such an event. So I'm going to be very brief with introductions, so I could talk for a long time about each of our speakers. But because we have a panel of three, and because we want to get on to our Q&A with all of you, I'm going to be extremely brief. So first of all, I'm so happy to welcome uh, Professor Anna Karine Pereja. Um, she is uh, a professor at the Center for Sustainable Development at the University of Brasilia. She's visiting here at the moment uh, in the IT department, so we're taking advantage of her presence. Her recent articles include the construction of state capacities and infrastructure policies, socio-environmental demands and state heterogeneities, and radical reorganization of environmental policy, contemporary evidence from Brazil. She has a whole list of publications, but those two anyway, um, I wanted to mention. She'll be speaking in, in her initial contribution uh, tonight on opportunities and setbacks faced by the Brazilian left in implementing environmental policies. She'll focus on the period since Lula's election. Secondly, we're lucky to have Melanie Cruz. Melanie is lecturer in international politics at the Global South at Leicester University. She has a current research project on nonviolent resistance in the Chilean feminist movement. Uh, and that explores the resurgence of the feminist movement in Chile. Uh, for those who, of you who want to have a look, she has an article just out this month, or a co-authored article, I think, uh, A Revolt Within a Revolt, Feminist Political Ideas in Chile's Social Uprising in the Feminist Review. So that couldn't be more opposite for tonight's topic. She'll be speaking about the rise of the recent feminist movement in Chile and its impact on progressive politics. And last but not least, I'm welcoming back uh, Dr. Jeff Goodwin. He's a lecturer in Global Political Economy of Leeds and co-director of the Center for Global Development. I was thinking he only left here five minutes ago. He used to teach <laughs> in our department, and he's already co-directing the center. His research centers on land and water in Ecuador, and more recently in Colombia. And he has a wider interest in the history and political economy of Latin America. Jack, by the way, is an expert in Carl Polanyi, and has, will be coming out, I think, with a book sometime soon on Polanyi's uh, uh, relevance within development. He'll be speaking on Ecuador, discussing Correismo and, and the prospects for an emergence of a wider and alternative left movement in Ecuador. So we want to welcome you all. Uh,
create that plan, the action plan to prevent and control deforestation in the Amazon. And besides that, the government, they also invested a lot to consolidate a state career of environmental analysts, which was very important to implement environmental policies by that time uh, as well. So in terms of policies, uh, the government uh, created this action plan to prevent and control deforestation in the Amazon, which was very successful uh, to create a conservation unit, uh, to strengthen inspection action, uh, and as a result of all these actions, there was a very impressive deforestation decrease, as you can see in this map here, um, from 2005 up to 2012. So this uh, decrease accumulated like a reduction of about 80%. This actually re represented the largest uh, single um, contribution of a country in curbing, uh, to, to, to curb uh, climate uh, change. So it was very, it was very impressive. Uh, besides these achievements, uh, the working party government also faced a lot of many challenges during this uh, administration from 2003 up to 2015. So one of these challenges was the, um, the change of the governmental agenda. So in Lula's second term, uh, there was a very big, big focus on development in the developmental agenda, which was represented by this uh, growth acceleration program. So with this program, the government basically, they wanted to boost uh, economic growth through investment in these massive and very large infrastructure projects. And in the Amazon specifically, the government invested in the construction of hydroelectric dams such as Belo Monte, probably you have heard about it. Actually, this picture represents, uh, some tr tries to capture the consequences of Belo Monte uh, in the fishing communities. And also they invested a lot in paving roads in the Amazon. And all of that caused a lot of social and environmental consequences such as the reduction of conservation units which has been created like in uh, the first years of Lula's uh, government. Another challenge which we have been facing since then in Brazil was the strength of the, what do you call it in Brazil? I don't know if that's the right word in English, what do you call it? Uh, ruralistic block in Congress. So this block, they're pretty much linked to agribusiness interests and they defend environmental flexibility and also the flexibility of environmental policies and regulations. And uh, specifically during the Dilma's Rousseff's uh, government, they were very successful in organizing themselves to be represented in the Congress. And also they started to contest uh, the environmental achie achievements from Lula's first government. So there was this very contentious uh, thing going on in the Brazilian politics around agribusiness and environmental interests. And as a consequence of that, um, the Congress approved the new forest code in 2012, and um, that represented a huge setback in terms of protecting Brazilian forests by that time. So as you know, Lula was, has just been elected again last year in 2022, and the situation when he took office again was really bad in terms of environmental 
issues. So the previous government was very successful in dismantling uh, our environmental policy. And during Bolsonaro's government, the uh, deforestation in Amazon, it raised like over uh, 60%. So it, the situation was really bad. That means that when Lula was elected, many environmentalists inside and outside, outside Brazil, everyone was celebrating. But what I want to discuss now is like, what does really mean Lula's election for the environment right now? So is the environmental agenda in his government strong or not? And does the government have the tools and the, capa the capability to really implement a strong uh, environmental policy? So before talking about Lula, I just think that it's important to talk a little bit very briefly about the legacy of the previous government, Bolsonaro's government. And so Bolsonaro, he was the Brazilian president, as you uh, probably know, from 2019 until last year, 2022. And he was elected by this uh, political party coalition, which was very, very much linked to agribusiness. And most of his voters were also linked to agribusiness, especially in the Amazon region. So once he was elected, he started immediately to really uh, try to dismantle the environmental policy in so many ways. So uh, he ended the, this policy, this policy that I that I just mentioned, the policy, the, the act uh, program to control deforestation in the Amazon. He also suspended the Amazon fund. And he nominated for uh, the Minister of Environment, Ricardo Salles, which pretty much is very, pretty much linked to agribusiness interests. And he was actually involved with um, illegal timber export. So it was really, really complicated. Uh, here, uh, I'm just gonna summarize this data here. Here, I, I brought some data about uh, research that I have conducted. Uh, specifically about the inspection, the environmental inspection policy. So he has just tried to understand how the government was able to dismantle this specific policy. So basically, Bolsonaro he um, reduced the budget for inspection actions, and the government also approved all these normative acts to undermine the street level bureaucracy in the field, uh, the, the autonomy of the street level bureaucracy in the field. And also, they he started to nominate all these directors who, in top-level bureaucracy, uh, who were military and they had no experience with the environment. And they were most of them they were like uh, involved with environmental crimes. So it was really uh, a dark moment in Brazil. So going back to Lula again, uh, during Lula's uh, campaign, a election campaign last year. The environmental agenda was very strong and very central in his speech. So in his inauguration speech, he, he, give, he even stressed that uh, the new government must uh, rebuild the environmental policy and should also reposition Brazil as a global leader uh, in the fight against, against climate change. And he nominated again Marina Silva to be the Minister of the Environment, which again was very celebrated by the environmentalists. So by that time, Lula agenda in terms of Lula environmental agenda was very ambitious. So he claimed that uh, he, he would do everything so that Brazil could achieve zero deforestation by 2030. He would strengthen Ibama, which is the uh, 
regulatory environmental agency. He would create new contribution units. He would also uh, transform the environmental policy in a transitional policy so that uh, many ministers and not only the minister of the environment would be involved with his, in, the, in the policy. Uh, he would also restart the environmental budget and so, so and other uh, goals. So what has been done so far in these first months of Lula's uh, government? So uh, he was able to reestablish the Amazon Fund, which is very important to sponsor um, the environmental policy, the implementation of the environmental policy. He also increased, uh, the government also increased the budget of the Ministry of the Environment, and they also revoked, they were, they were able to revoke many decrees from Bolsonaro, decrees that harm the environment, such as that this decree that um, created this program for the small-scale mining in the Amazon. And they created, again, the action plan to prevent and control deforestation in the Amazon. So with this plan, they uh, wish, they, they intend to create uh, new conservation units and to hire environmental analysts to implement the policy. So what are the main challenges that the new government uh, has been facing to implement this environmental agenda? So one main challenge, challenge in Brazil is the political polarization. So which this map, I think it shows very well this polarization. Uh, so uh, Lula, he was elected by a very small margin over Bolsonaro, it was like really uh, small. And actually this map uh, shows this polarization. The states who are uh, in red vote, voted uh, in the majority for Lula and the states which are in blue voted for Bolsonaro. So the country was really, and it still is very polarized. And another problem was the election of the state governors. So most of them, they are linked to Bolsonaro's. So there is a lot of opposition in the state level to Lula. Uh, also, since the country was so polarized, the working party, um, the, the working party, in order to win the elections, they had to build this really broad co political party coalition, which included 16 political parties. So it's really broad. And many, some of, some of these political parties, they are also linked to agribusiness, so they are not very open to strong environmental uh, policies. Another challenge was the election of the National Congress. So right now in the Brazilian Congress, uh, congressmen are discussing some really important bills in terms of environmental issues. So for instance, there is this bill about environmental licensi license, the intent of this bill is to, to make the environmental license more flexible, and also this bill that makes the approval of, of pesticides more flexible as well. The problem is that uh, the composition of the Congress that we have elected last year uh, is pretty much linked to Bolsonaro, so uh, the opposition linked link to Bolsonaro has the majority in Congress right now, so the situation for the working party is not like the best one. And there was also a significant increase of this anti-environmental bench in the Chamber of Deputies, and also a strength of the parliamentary agribusiness front in Congress. So the situation is not really um, 
goes right now for environmental issues. And because of that, uh, we have already experienced uh, in Brazil some setbacks in this first year of Lula's third government. So the first setback was the approval of this law in the Congress, which which draw, which withdraw uh, many important responsibilities from the Minister of the Environment, such as responsibilities related to water resources, basic sanitation, and solid waste. And another setback is the own uh, working party agenda, which is also uh, very what is the word in English like developmentalistic. So the working party they are defending this new growth acceleration program. Oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> they are uh, defending the launch of this new uh, growth acceleration program. So with that, they uh, they want to invest again in this massive infrastructure project in Amazon, which is uh, it, it can cause many several social environmental impacts. And also the working party and Lula himself is defending the oil exploration in Amazon, which has been already been contested by Obama. But there is a lot of pressure in Obama right now from the government uh, to approve this uh, project. And we don't really know what's gonna happen. So that's all for now. Thank you for your attention. with feminist, uh, one particular feminist organization in the country. 
And finally, finally, because uh, uh, I can see the typo now in there, it's gonna bother me, but anyway, and the challenges and the setbacks on um, on the on the feminist on the, the influence of feminist movement in in Chile today. So in October 2019, we see what in, what in Chile we call La Revuelta, which was a social uh, uprising that emerged particularly from the rise of metro fairs in Santiago, the capital. And this happened on a regular weekday in the commutes uh, in which a group of students, uh, not university students, but uh, school students, start like a random protest in the metro by jumping the metro barriers. And this was not particularly unusual. We have a pretty strong student movement in Chile, so this was kind of a regular day. Except that October, um, the majority of the population start joining these social protests. We see randomly on TV uh, how instead of uh, people criticizing students and saying the same thing again, oh, why students are protesting? Oh my God, my commute back home is getting double the time. They were actually supporting them. They were like, oh yeah, this is, this is the end. We have to all join. We all have to uh, support the students. We have to join in, we have to join in. And from that, we see a spiral of a series of uh, protests, violent and non-violent protests, protests that lasted for a few months. So what is the background? Why, why suddenly we have this sort of uprising, this sudden uh, outspurt of uh, anger and discontent? In the analysis of the 2019 sort of crisis, we can say that there was a high discontent for uh, the cost of living crisis, hence the rise of metro fares, and uh, a discontent in traditional political system. At the time, uh, the president of the country was uh, a right-wing politician called Sergio Piñera, and, um, and people were very discontent, not just of the economic consequences, but also the high level of corruptions uh, that it will kind of popping up every now and then in different financial sector, political sector, and so on and so forth. And, and one of the, the topics that emerged from this, this period of um, sort of uh, social movement <coughs> is that we see a clear critique from social organizations that start joining these um, continuation of protest, protests is a, a critique of the continuities of the 1980s constitution. I said at the beginning we were on a dictatorship for 17 years and one of the consequences of that dictatorship was the writing of the 1980s constitution. It's a very, very tight constitution. What I mean by this is that it's really, really hard to reform. It's very hard to change. And although it's been reformed uh, throughout the 90s and 2000s in democratic um, governments, these reforms have not been enough to actually transform, make a structural transformation for the country. And I think there was an underlying uh, argument or narrative emerging from these movements to say, well, this is the time to change the constitution. This is what is gonna solve uh, the main the structural problems in the country. So we see this discontent, 
happening? And what was the reaction of the mainstream political system, all political parties from the far left to the, well, there was not a clear far right yet, but to the proper mainstream right. We see there was not a clear response to this social uprising. In fact, I believe, and this is perhaps we could argue that it was actually quite, they were quite surprised. They could not believe that for the first time in decades, uh, the Chilean population was actually revolting against the political system. It was so harsh the response from the government that this is a direct quote from the president at the time, we are at war with a powerful enemy. He said that in front of, uh, in front of uh, cameras and, and live television. So that sort of made things worse and it kind of created a second round of high level of pro protest in the country. This obviously was with response with high um, police force, military forces were in the street and it was a lot of violent confrontation uh, at the time. And of course it brought serious consequences and serious violations of human rights. Um, and famously uh, over 300 uh, eye injuries were uh, identified during this period alongside other very uh, serious violations of human rights. What happened after the, the period of the social uprising? As I was saying, uh, one of the answers that the social movements, uh, the civil society, and then uh, the political system thought it would be a good outcome was to reopen, or reopen, just open, because it's never been open before, open the constitutional process that is still ongoing. That meant, and I can expand on this question if you're interested later in the Q&A because it's a kind of a side conversation, I guess. But um, the constitutional process meant to write a new constitution that will replace the 1980s constitution. And this was a pretty important outcome because it was decided uh, through a referendum um, at, the, at the end of uh, 2021, and yes, a referendum by around 80% voted to actually create a constitutional convention that will write uh, a new constitution. This was done um, throughout 2001. Um, we see the creation of the convention by the election, 100% elected members, and they write the draft, and by the end of that process, the draft is rejected in an other referendum. There's a lot of referendum in this story, so if you can't keep up, <laughs> then we come back to it, okay? Because there's a lot of referendums happening. Um, so that, that, that draft is rejected. The interesting part of that dilemma for uh, the discussion we're having today, which has to do with the progressive politics and in, in, in Chile in this case, is that those who were elected to the convention in 2021 uh, were majority progressive forces from left-wing political parties, but also from independent social movements. So the, the draft, one could argue, was very, very progressive. We're talking about uh, lines 
of what happened in Ecuador, for example, plurinational state, uh, and legalized abortion, and access to radical things like a national health system. Um, so um, this created quite, oh, of course, a lot of discontent from uh, right-wing sectors of the country. Nevertheless, at the same time, we were having a national election to elect a new president. And in this uh, context emerged, uh, no, it was not a new figure because Gabriel Boric was a uh, member of parliament, but he became uh, the uh, running lead, um, candidate for the progressive forces at the time. And he was elected in our second round against uh, Felipe Cast who was the far-right candidate of, uh, and one of the founders of the new far-right party, finally, like, it's called the Republican Party. I don't know where they got that idea from. Uh, it's very, I don't know, it's very original. Um, so uh, that's the two forces that it got into the second round, and Boric is elected uh, in 2021. What, um, what is interesting about this process, and I think I want to highlight this because kind of tied nicely to the second part of the, the presentation, is that 68% um, of women under 30 supported Boric. And we see an increase in uh, women's turnout to vote. The highest uh, turnout of uh, women in democratic elections since the, since the 1990s, so since we returned to democracy. So we see that there's a high uh, political movement from uh, women's uh, organizations, but also uh, what I'm gonna talk about today, uh, the rise of the feminist movement. The feminist movement, of course, or the feminist trajectory in Chile is much longer than 2019, uh, as it is in most countries. But I want to highlight the milestones since uh, then, and how influential this particular movement has been for, for the push to uh, progressive politics in the country throughout the social uprisings and in the aftermath. And I want to highlight one particular organization, not because it is a, a mainstream organization, but because it's an organization that is, is so a different strategy to implement or to incorporate feminist ideas into mainstream politics. And this is Coordinada Otto M. They organized um, the International Women's Day in 2018, and they created this, this, this coordinadora, which is basically a network that works uh, autonomous from uh, political organizations, uh, either political parties, NGOs, or um, trade unions. Um, in 2018, they were quite present and quite, they took quite leadership in what it was called Mayo Feminista, which was the feminist May, a particular set of protests, protests that happened that May against um, sexist education in higher, in higher universities. These were because there was a lot of cases of sexual assault in 
also a lot of discrimination against women students and staff. So university students, once again, they came out and sort of organized uh, occupations and protests. But it was the first time in, in the student movement history that there was a leadership and, um, from women and the, the connotation of that movement was feminist. So it was called uh, the Feminist May. In reference, obviously, to May 1968, as you probably will make that parallel. Another important milestone that uh, put this uh, network of feminists at the front was the organization of the Women's Strike, which is, takes place on International Women's Day in 2019. So before the social, social uprising, um, which has been one of the largest protests since the return to democracy, which is also very impressive to be a feminist movement that kind of gathered that amount of people in uh, a march. And then we have a more international well-known milestone of this movement that is the performance of La Thesis that happened for me in London. I think they're quite uh, well known, but also I can just explain a little bit more what they did uh, with that performance during the social uprising. It's identified that that performance, uh, because there was a decline in the everyday protests in Santiago, but after it's measured that after that performance and the series of performances that they did with this particular dance and music, sort of like an artistic intervention, uh, there was a, a return to the social protest. So people kind of returned back to the street after the, the last day's intervention. So we see how there's a series of milestones around the social uprising that have that sort of feminist intervention and connotation. Uh, who, who are these feminists, right? So it's a bit of an abstract <coughs> to think about the feminist movement. Who are they? Uh, in the public face activism, the majority are urban, university-educated young women, so under 30. Um, this is the vast majority of women that participate in the front of the, uh, the feminist network, but also as spokespersons in, in doing the social uprising and any, any of these other organized events. And, uh, and that's kind of what you see. However, they also describe that they have a very intersectional approach to who join the network or the movement. Uh, we start seeing, and this is also an interesting phenomenon of how we identify these feminists or these feminisms, is that um, a lot of organizations, political parties in particular, but also trade unions and more traditional social movements, like movements for the um, movements for water, for example, they start building feminist branches within it. So we start seeing how mainstream politics, institutional politics, start using the language of feminism to explain their politics around 2018 and 2019. So we start seeing this interconnection between what I call institutional feminism and non-institutional feminism. 
And for the process of the social uprising, this was a very coherent uh, alliance, if you wanted, because allowed uh, institutions, organizations, political parties that had that had the infrastructure to run events, protests, marches, and do lobbying in in Congress, for example, and build alliances with like street movements and social movements. Apart here is a, a side point that what is the ideological position of this feminist? Because it's so diverse, is it's very difficult to pinpoint what are the ideological alliances. And I'm gonna and that's what it was my question when I started but what, so what are these who are these feminists? What are because yeah, from the media you start thinking where are where they are located, what are the networks, but what are they thinking? What are, are their ideas that they can believe, they can contribute to this idea of progressive politics? And before knowing is that um, is that they were anti-capitalist and or anti-neoliberalist, uh, anti-neoliberal and uh, left-leaning. I'm going to skip this and then we can talk about it more. But so what I found in my research is what feminist organizations, particularly coordinated out to the market, so managed to implement or to expand feminist political ideas across the political spectrum using two elements. Um, horizontalidad, which is like horizontal politics and autonomy, uh, which was a way for them to intersect and enter to make several political spaces, but also maintain independence from militancy uh, programs so allow them to have that flexibility to step in and out of certain political situations that were not uh, perhaps feminist in principle. And the second of it is the implementation of political <coughs> narratives that they were expanded uh, throughout society. One of them being uh, the, the idea of precariousness of life. So they started interconnecting the problem of neoliberalism, so the crisis of neoliberalism that Chile was going through and kind of exploding in 2019 with a contribution from feminist ideas. Something that is not new, by the way, those who probably study feminism here will be like, well, that's not new. It wasn't new, but it, it, it wasn't new for, for this feminist either, but it was the ability to interconnect those problems in order to gather wide support uh, across the population. And obviously invite more women in particular, but not just women, men, and other diversities into the feminist movement. And I have some quotes there, but we can, I can go back to them if you have any questions. So I see the spelling as well again. Um, the challenges we see here uh, for the progressive movements from a feminist perspective, I think there are three at the moment. One of them is what I told you at the beginning, the rejection of the constitutional proposal uh, and the opening of a new constitutional process that is still ongoing. We have to vote on the 17th of December. Uh, that is being written now from the far right perspective, which is not very helpful. Um, feminists have not been able to intervene in that space again. They have a huge intervention in the previous process of drafting the constitution, and then now uh, are um, kind of isolated from that process. So opens the question of how much of these ideas 
are still very present in the daily debates, political debates in the country. That goes in hand with the rise of the far right, which is in, in principle anti-feminist. We think about anti-abortion, anti-women's rights, and all those narratives that are not unusual. I believe you're probably familiar with as well. They have entered parliament with two senators and 12 deputies, and they constitute the 35% of the constitutional council that is currently, that's just uh, draft the new constitution um, proposal. And then is the rearticulation of this, all this feminism. So we have the tension, as I was saying, institutional feminism and autonomous feminism. Since the election of Boric as a progressive president, we've seen the attraction of fe institutional feminists that obviously are working on the interests of government, but in tension with the continuation of autonomous feminist organizations that are in the street criticizing the progressive government. So the alliances that work in 2019, 2020, uh, and 21 are not so clear anymore. So we haven't seen, again, that wider movement, street movement, that we see in the last few years. So those are the tensions and the challenges the feminist movement have that it shows success in the last few years, but has been more dormant or quiet in the last year or so. Just to finish, very, so what is the question here is that, obviously it's ongoing, we can't resolve these this problems uh, or predict these problems, but uh, what is interesting is that that enter to, political, um, to the political arena of, of feminism in Chile is been a unique opportunity. So the question is, was that the only opportunity they had or there will be other avenues for them to continue to intervene the political sphere. Right, so this is obviously a set of uh, references, but thank you very much. If you have any questions, we talk about it. Okay, yeah, Wonderful. Thank you, um, thank you, Melanie and, and Anna. That was uh, really fascinating to learn about um, what's been happening in, in, in Brazil and Chile. Um, I'm going to be focusing on, on Ecuador. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say a huge thank you to, to James and to, and to Laura for the invitation to speak. It's, uh, it's a huge honour for me to be part of the Cutting Edge uh, series. I've watched it for many years, and I know um, how much work goes into organising these events. I'm, I'm, I'm really honoured to be part of it. Um, and on a personal level, it's also wonderful to be back at LSE, seeing colleagues and, and, and former students as well, which is um, excellent. Um, okay, so I'm going to focus on, 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 on Ecuador, and um, I'm going to focus really on, I'm going to break my talk into three um, parts. I'm going to start by um, setting it up as some kind of paradox, what I'm calling a neoliberal paradox. That is... How do we understand the election victories of neoliberal candidates in Ecuador in six years after the leftist uh, president Rafael Correa left office in 2017? Um, and I will argue in the second part that to understand that, we need to look at the nature and also the legacies of Correismo, um, the movement that has emerged um, around uh, Rafael Correa. And then, um, to finish, I'll really focus on some of the opportunities for a left, the wider left in, in Ecuador, 
um, in, in the context in the wake of Daniel Naboa's election victory um, in October, just last month. So, um, so Ecuador um, witnessed some of the most sustained and widespread resistance to neoliberal reform and structural adjustment in the from the 1980s, early 1980s, through to the, the early 2000s. And if you want um, the backdrop on that, you might want to read Duncan's earlier work, um, which was um, really like, showed some of the, the sort of social devastation really that was caused through structural adjustment and and neoliberal reform in the 1980s and 1990s. Um, and this really widespread um, mobilizations, which came across uh, different sectors, really um, created the platform for uh, Rafael Correa to win the 2006 uh, presidential elections. And he started his presidency in early 2007. And he remained in power for 10 years. Um, and here, uh, uh, Correa is reflecting on this moment in Ecuadorian history, this sort of landmark moment really in Ecuadorian history, uh, in an interview in, which was published in the New Left Review some years, some years after um, the election victory. So he says, you know, what we were proposing was a revolution understood as a radical and rapid change in the existing structures of Ecuadorian society in order to change the bourgeois state into a truly popular one. Yeah. So, uh, in my opinion, uh, Correa fell well short of, of, um, of achieving this. Um, however, his governments made uh, significant advances as well. Uh, state institutions were rebuilt after decades of decline uh, during structural adjustment and neoliberal reform. There was significant investment in infrastructure and public services. Uh, social security and social protection expanded. There are also um, some quite novel social uh, inclusion programs that his government experimented with, including with working with street gangs, for example, um, even if prison population also increased uh, significant, significantly. Public parks, public spaces were, were revitalized. So more broadly, I think what Correa did, and to some extent he embodied this, I mean, he's, this is him as a, as, a, as a much younger man, he really generated a sense of progress and hope in Ecuador, um, especially during his early, um, the early years in, in office. And these advances uh, and his charisma uh, explain um, why he was able to win two consecutive presidential elections. I mean, he won three presidential elections consecutively, but two um, are based on full terms in office in the first round, which is really uh, unprecedented in Ecuadorian history. So he was an incredible um, electoral force. And this explains to some extent why, why he continues to have considerable support um, um, uh, in, in, in Ecuador. Okay, so what happened next then when Correa left office? Well, um, Lenin Moreno, um, who was a vice president under Correa, um, he took office and he won uh, the, the 2017 elections with a mandate to continue Correa's political project. Um, but he quickly abandoned that and embraced what I would call neoliberal austerity uh, under the guidance of the, of the IMF. So he, he signed two massive agreements with the IMF, totaling to $6.5 billion. Um, and this included lots of the usual conditions we would associate with the IMF. So austerity, cutting back public spending, privatization, and economic liberalization. And then Guillermo Lasso, who won the 2000. Um, 
2021 elections and he beat the Correista candidate Andres Arauz um, in the second round. He then continued along this, this neoliberal path um, before being pushed out of office uh, uh, in early this year uh, when he was uh, uh, threatened with impeachment and he dissolved the assembly and triggered new elections. Um, so critics of neoliberalism or neoliberal policies, like me, expected things to get worse. You know, the expectation was that socio-economic conditions would deteriorate, especially, especially for, for um, uh, low-income groups and marginalized groups in society, but few people expected it to get as bad as it has, has done. Um, you can see here from this data that come from Cepal, uh, uh, a general deterioration in, in poverty, this reverses the decline in poverty that we saw during Correa's presidency, especially during the, the first half of his presidency. So you see this fairly steep um, increase in, in poverty. Um, and today, around more than one in four Ecuadorians live on less than $88 a month. The minimum wage, I think, is currently $450 a month, the minimum wage. Um, so conditions have become more precarious. Of course, Correa didn't, <laughs> Uh, eradicate uh, poverty. Poverty was very much uh, uh, continued up during his presidency, but it's important to recognize that he made significant advances and those advances have been reversed. The most alarming um, change has been in relation to crime and, and violence. Um, the homicide rate here gives us a kind of general indication <coughs> of a much wider tendency. So we can see here um, during uh, Correa's presidency, a quite significant decline in, in the homicide rate. Pretty much, you know, soon after, he, soon after taking office, all the way through to 2017 when he left. Um, and then when Moreno and Lasso come in, we see, certainly from 2020 onwards, really exponential increase in, 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 in crime and violence. And these homicide rates are lower than, than other homicide rates. I'm just using them to give you a sense of the, uh, the, the trend over time. Um, so uh, this is largely connected to international criminal networks and gangs who are vying for control of very lucrative uh, drug tra trafficking routes through Ecuador. Most of the coca is produced in, in uh, the neighboring countries of Ecuador, in Colombia, in Peru, and in, and in um, Bolivia. Um, but Ecuador is a very important drug trafficking hub. So a lot of this, this violence and crime has been connected to drug trafficking, um, but it has been fueled, I would argue, by increased poverty, increased precarity, and by neoliberal austerity, by the restructuring of the state and, um, and um, all of those changes that we've seen over the last uh, five years. So the homicide rate really gives us an indication of a much wider deterioration in uh, in crime and violence uh, and security in, in Ecuador. On a personal level, it's been really distressing to see it uh, deteriorate so, so dramatically. Um, it's particularly intense in the coastal region of Ecuador where the, where the drug trafficking routes are more, are more um, important, but it's spread across the country. And now in Ecuador, um, it's much more common for extortions, kidnappings, and political assassinations, most famously, most disturbingly, uh, Fernando Vicencio was assassinated. He was a presidential uh, candidate. He was assassinated just before the first round of the presidential elections. We've also seen a series of shocking uh, prison massacres in Ecuador, which have left, left over uh, 400 prisoners dead um, since Correa left office. 
So um, we see this really disturbing uh, deterioration in crime and violence and really a state that's unable to control um, this process. Um, what we've also seen uh, as a consequence of this really is a massive outflow of, 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 of Ecuadorians. So they started, Ecuadorians started to um, pour out the country when the borders were reopened after the uh, COVID pandemic. And this data, sorry, it's a bit complicated, but you get a sense of the overall trend. Um, what we see here is um, during Correa's presidency, net outward migration was actually reversed temporarily. So more Ecuadorians were coming back into Ecuador than leaving the country for the first time in over 20 years. Um, and then right towards the end, we see this sharp acceleration of migration after 2020 when the borders were, were, um, were opened after the, um, well, during the COVID-19 pandemic. So um, migration is now at 20-year uh, highs. And um, from what I can tell from this year, the numbers have continued to increase. So most Ecuadorian migrants who have been leaving Ecuador have um, attempted to cross into the US and Canada, often trying to travel overland through uh, Central America. And this would involve co crossing the Darien Gap, which is the gap, the, 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 the um, the tropical region between uh, Colombia and Panama. And this quote, this comes from an El Pais article where um, one person who was crossing it said, look, I have more fear of living in Ecuador than I do of crossing the Darien. So we get a sense of just how precarious life has become in Ecuador, and it's really reflected um, in, the, in the migration data. So against this backdrop then, um, why is Correismo, why is the Correista party now uh, called the Revolución uh, Ciudadana, why, why have they not been able to recapture a presidency six years after? We've seen this massive deterioration in, in socioeconomic conditions, accelerating crime and violence, um, and uh, the Correista candidate was defeated in the second round of the elections in 2021, and Luisa González, who was the Correista candidate in the 2023 elections, the second round were in October. She was defeated by Daniel Naboa, who is a member of one of Ecuador's wealthiest families and comes from the right and is very much uh, about uh, maintaining some degree of neoliberal continuity. So, you know, we could ask, but surely, given what we've seen in 2023, the, the time was right for a Correista victory, but that didn't come to pass. And um, I think to understand that, we really need to look into the nature of Correismo and think about some of its negatives. And I'll spend uh, the next uh, five minutes or so talking about those elements, and then I'll come on to talk a little bit about the wider Ecuadorian left. So Correismo is just, of course, one element of a much broader movement. Okay, so, um, First of all, then I, I, I would like to focus um, on extractivism. You know, as is well known, the Correa government was heavily dependent on, on oil revenues in particular, but also on mining revenues, and his government um, tried to accelerate or did accelerate the, or expand the mining frontier, particularly in the Andean region. Um, and this triggered significant local resistance and it really ruptured relations with lots of the social movements, particularly the indigenous movement, the largest indigenous movement in Ecuador, uh, CONAI. Um, 
but also with environmental movements and collectives which have grown in strength in Ecuador over the last 20 years, and that's one of the really interesting developments that, that we've seen in, in, in Ecuador. And the Yasuni Tete initiative, initiative um, it was really emblematic of this. I'm not sure how many of you have heard of the Yasuni ETT initiative, but put very simply, the proposal was we, 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 coming from an Ecuadorian perspective, we'll leave more than 850 million barrels of oil uh, un, unexploited in the Amazonian uh, rainforest in oil fields located, to the, located close and in the uh, Yasuni National Park. Um, the idea was that the, the oil would be left unexploited in exchange for compensation from the international community, broadly defined. Um, and the Correa government, who supported this initiative initially, were asking for $3.6 billion, which was estimated at around half of the, the value of the oil, given oil prices at that time. Um, so it was an incredibly innovative initiative, uh, one that was very much driven from below. Uh, the Correa government certainly didn't start it, but, they support, but the Correa government supported it um, in its opening years. But when it didn't attract significant investment from overseas, um, and the Correa government was starting to look for new sources of finance, it closed the, um, the initiative unilaterally in 2013, and then it blocked a referendum on the issue um, uh, in the following year. So oil production started in the Yasuni National Park or in the free oil fields that are uh, integrated into its team in 2016. So um, one, one reason I wanted to highlight Yasuni in particular was because it came back to Horn Korea um, this year when the movement behind uh, the referendum in 2013 eventually were able to force a referendum on the initiative. Oh my goodness. Okay, so... Um, they forced a referendum on the issue, and um, the referendum won. It was supported by 60% of the electorate, and Gonzalez, Luis Gonzalez really um, uh, uh, failed to support it, as did Carrera. Okay, I'm gonna move very quickly through this. In fact, I'll just skip a, a couple of these points because they're not as, they are as interesting, perhaps, because this comes from my own research, but I can come back and answer some questions on this. Um, one element of the Koreaismo, which is really important to understand, and this comes back uh, very much connected to what Melanie was talking about, feminism, and um, was authoritarianism. So Korea was, um, and Korea's governments were, um, were authoritarian. Um, they deployed significant amounts of repression and authoritarianism uh, in various forms. And one of the most visible forms of, um, of this was during Correa's weekly addresses, so he would often have weekly televised addresses or weekly radio addresses, where he would often single out people for, um, for particular attention. In this case, he's referring to anti-mining activists in the Southern Andes. And, he's, uh, and, he's, and he says, I call on all the civilized citizens of the country to announce these unpatriotic uh, people, fight them. These are anti-mining activists. Um, it's almost impossible to even talk about her and Lina Solana, Solano, who was one of the mining activists. Please, we have, to, we have to send this lady to a psychiatrist. So you can see the kind of sexist um, language that Correa used. Um, and this is what um, Teresa Velasquez in her, in her fantastic book refers to as a sort of performative machismo, which is very much part of um, Correa's style. So, um, this was very much about, this discursive technique was very much about trying to create the enemy, if you like, of a revolution ciudadana. Um, 
and, um, and, and Korea very much governed through a kind of populist logic of us versus, the, uh, us versus them. And that really distanced his movement from the social bases and alienated lots of, lots of voters. So um, I think one of the big problems that Koreaism faces is the hero worshipping of, of Korea. Um, and this has really limited any space for debate, internal critique, or uh, renewal within, within Koreaism or within the movement. Um, and this very much came to play um, in the 2013 elections when, uh, 2023 elections, when Luisa Gonzalez was very much um, presenting the Korea presidency as a blueprint for future Korea governments. You know, warts and all, take it or leave it. There was no kind of critique or self-reflection at all, <coughs> at least externally and, and, and looking in. So, um, you know, my, my point really is one argument I'd like to make when we think about the wider left then is that um, there, are, there are limits, there are clear limits to what we can expect uh, to happen within Koreaism or within the Koreaista movement. Um, but, um, and, and I think the recent election results suggest that Koreaism has hit its electoral limits. It, it captures about 33% of a vote in the first round of both the 21 and 2023 20, elections. But it won't be going anywhere either. Uh, it will remain a very powerful uh, electoral force on the left. And I think the challenge then for the left is to find ways of working with Koreaismo, but without being dominated and being consumed by it. Um, so this would involve building a wider movement of left movements, autonomous movements, political movements and parties um, that are able to find areas of agreement um, while also respecting diversity and autonomy, which of course is a very complicated task. And I think CONAI, the largest indigenous movement in Ecuador, is really the most, the best place to be able to do this. Um, so, um, CONAI really led two massive mobilizations in Ecuador. It was interesting to hear Melanie's uh, reflections on Chile because this was part of a much wider cycle of mobilization that you've seen in Latin America in 2019, um, and it was also a surprise in Ecuador, you know, that no one expected CONAI to bring, mobilize its bases and occupy Quito in the way that it did in 2019, um, and then again in 2022. So two massive mobilizations which CONAI have, have led, and CONAI is able to articulate both indigenous or ethnic and religious, uh, uh, racial um, demands alongside class demands, and that's particularly true under the leadership of Leonidas Issa. So um, we can see this, I won't, I won't, we can perhaps come back to this and talk about it in the, in the, in the Q&A, but here are some of the demands that Konai have made um, that they are expecting the uh, Naboa government to, to follow through from, including introducing the, uh, or implementing the Yasuni um, referendum. So I think just to conclude then, very quickly, I think one of the ways um, that this can happen, and I think this is where it's an opportunity for Koreaismo, is to build from the ground up. Um, I, don't, I, I, I don't expect very much to happen in terms of the national leadership, but I think there are opportunities at the local level to build trust, to build relations. Um, and this is uh, Pavel Munoz, who's the uh, mayor of Quito. Um, and this is relating to the Choco Andino um, referendum, which was held at the same time as the, the Yasuni referendum, which is a, an anti-mining referendum. So I think there's opportunities for, for, for Koreas, the Koreaista party to work with um, social movements and collectives at the local level and build some kind of left movement um, from the ground up. And I think that's the most um, promising um, 
uh, route board. So I'm sorry I took a bit more time, James, but um, thank you very much for, for listening. As usual, the, the women are more disciplined than the men. I know, I know, I know. I know. that were put forward on the panel. So can I get a, can I get a view of, of questions? Okay, where are our mics? Okay, we start here. We'll take three questions at a time to start with, maybe. Um, yeah, so I'd love to know, um, there's the uh, talk about free will, and to what extent do you think that Okay, right here, maybe. Hi, um, thank you for your presentations. They were very interesting. Uh, it's very uh, on Chile, so it's very interesting to um, hear about the feminist movement uh, from your perspective. And I wonder uh, about, in general, probably for the panelists from Brazil and Ecuador, what do you feel about the feminist movements in those countries? And if you feel that the feminist uh, agenda or the feminist uh, the values behind or supporting fucking up the feminist movements could be an answer against the uh, colonialism. I don't know how to say that in English. In Latin Thank America. Thank you. And okay. Okay, let me, yes, thank you very much. We've got to start with it. Yeah, so that, that's a really interesting point. I think um, 
it's certainly connected, absolutely. I think the, the commodity boom, um, which didn't really end, which kind of, you know, I mean, collapsed in 2013-14 in terms of oil prices, um, and that and that's one of the things I wanted to highlight in terms of you know one of the the, the, the weaknesses of, of, of the revolution of Sudan or the, you know Koreaism was this heavy reliance on oil and, and mining uh, revenues um, and the and the, the, the lack of um, institutions that were created to try to smooth the flow of, of oil revenues you know the money was just uh, spent and then um, Korea started to cut back public spending in 2015. Um, so I think you could, I, I certainly think that it can be connected to that. I mean, that, that, that heavy reliance on, on extractivism, on oil in particular. Um, so, you know, this, 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 this process of, of you know, this, the cycles that we've seen in commodity markets, um, the inability, um, the faith of the Korea government uh, in, in oil and extractivism to kind of fuel its, its, its political program. Um, so I think you can you can certainly see that there were there were connections there, but I would argue that that, that what we've seen in terms of um, public spending cuts uh, and the reorganisation and restructuring of the state under you know from Moreno and Lasso, I would I would argue is a more decisive factor, um, quite frankly. I mean, of course we, we can you know agree to disagree there, but I think that it's certainly connected. But it but it's really a, the political choices. But Moreno and Lasso have taken in, in collaboration with the IMF, that I think are really the most important. Sh shall I? I don't yeah, know yeah. because there's another question for you, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Corruption. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, maybe I'll come back to the feminist movement at the end so I don't uh, talk too much. Yeah. So in terms of corruption, yeah, of course, the Correa government was, was, was very corrupt, like all of Ecuadorian governments before. Um, I think one of the things that that really struck me, um, you know, having lived in Ecuador and you know having studied Ecuador's political economy, was the difference with Correa. You know, corruption is is endemic um, in Ecuador. You know, as it is in the UK, <laughs> of course, it just happens in a very different um, form. It's legal in the UK. Um, <laughs> so I think the difference was Correa was Correa government was corrupt, but they also built things. You know. But they also had, you know, huge investment in infrastructure. The new airport was built, massive, you know, roads, so on and so forth. So I think there's huge levels of corruption. Um, but the difference was what 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 sort of different what made the Correa government different to the earlier governments, the right wing governments, or they were corrupt, but they also built things. They also did things with that money. Um, so I think you know the idea that any government. Quite frankly, any in any Latin American government is going to defeat corruption is just a fantasy. Quite frankly, um, so I think all that you can do is try to think about ways of using public money in a more transparent way. Um, but I think the anti-corruption fight is what is like the you know war against drugs. It's a war that can never end. Um, so I think that, that absolutely, you know, there's also um, you can make the same argument about you know the war on drugs, right? That, um, the idea that any government is going to come in in, in, in South America and, and sort of defeat the, 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 the drug cartels is a fantasy. So they have to find ways of managing it. Um, and I think to some extent, Correa was able to do that for a, short, for a certain period of time. You know, if you look at what's hap what happens in Bolivia as well, then you see a different way of trying to work with um, the, 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 the drug trade and, and trying to institutionalize it in different ways. 
So I think, I mean, there's, a, you know, there's obviously a very strong tendency to put all of the blame on all of the problems we see in Ecuador and Korea. Um, I take a more balanced view. I'm very critical of Korea, but I'm critical from the left. Um, and I think that there are other factors we need to bring into, bring into play as well. Just to, just to very quickly say on that, I think to some extent, you know, what happened with Korea also happened with Lula, other left-wing governments were all wrapped up in the Odebrecht scandal. Um, and, and, and of course, you know, that's still playing out. Um, so I think to some extent that was all about the pink tide, the fact that pink tide governments were investing more in infrastructure. And of course, there was huge amounts of corruption happening. Yeah. Yes, but Anna, Anna, do you want to <coughs> come back again? Machismo is very, yeah. very evident across the board, I think. Mm -hmm. And Bolsonaro, especially, kind of represented that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Did you want to add something? Yeah, to just, to, just to add beyond, beyond the case of Chile, I think the feminist movement in Latin America is quite um, on the rise in, in several countries. I think uh, I'm not an expert on each of them, but my understanding is like in Ecuador, for example, you correct me if I'm wrong. There is a strong connection with finale, like uh, indigenous women, and they kind of like the decolonial feminism that has emerged strongly as a, as a political narrative. Um, but yeah, across the board, I think abortion rights, uh, um, campaigns of against violence against violence against women's campaigns, um, are kind of the center of the rise of feminism. And I think in terms of their influence in social uprisings, the case of Colombia was also very telling. They went through a social uprising in 2020, 2021. It was around the same time as Ecuador. Uh, and women's had a lot of uh, interesting role to play there. Um, but yeah, I, I think Argentina and Chile have the kind of the, move, the biggest movements in terms of like interjecting mainstream political uh, uh, yeah, political systems. Yeah. Just, 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 just very quickly. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I, I haven't, I haven't studied the feminist movement in, in Ecuador. Maybe some people in, in the room have more more insights than I do. But, um, but I think yeah, absolutely. There's, there's, it, there's a really interesting. In, in, actually, in the book that I mentioned by uh, Teresa Velasquez, she, she, she. That's what really her focus is on. How uh, anti-mining activism was very much. Um, uh, led by, by women activists at the local level and how um, they were really responding to various forms of um, discrimination and sexism uh, and inequalities. Uh, you know, you saw with the quote that I gave from Korea, the kind of abuse that they would receive, often very personal abuse. You saw the name of the person. You know, this is a, this is a televised address. Um, so um, so she, she, she really details that at a more local level and so how it intersects. I think it's more of a kind of intersectionality, thinking about you know, how feminism and race and ethnicity kind of intersect and class is really important. But it was important at the elections because um, 
um, Luisa Gonzalez is socially conservative, she's against abortion um, and, and, and other, other um, uh, women's rights, and that to, to some extent cost her votes from, from the feminist, uh, feminist uh, voters in the Netherlands. Yeah. Okay. Let me take another round of questions. One right here, and then we have one up on top. Constitution, 
and that didn't really make sense because many of these indigenous indigenous people they were expelled from their land, so that would have meant that uh, many indigenous people they couldn't have had um, their lands demarcated. Uh, so it's very complicated and interesting because the Supreme Court voted for the indigenous rights, but uh, the Senate vote against that. So we have this really contradiction thing right now, and I don't know how, it, I mean, the Supreme Court is the Supreme Court, so <laughs> I'm guessing that uh, the indigenous, uh, like, uh, the, the demarcation will go on, but the problem is that um, the, the way that the Supreme Court approved this was actual, actually, like, uh, tricky somehow, because, like, uh, if these lands are demarcated, then the state have to pay for um, the, the landlords uh, that will have to leave the lands. So it means that you, you will compensate people who invaded indigenous lands. So many people in Brazil are criticizing this and it's very, it's, it's still very contentious. So I, I'm not sure what's gonna happen actually, so. So I think that kind of plays 
the success and failure of the feminist movement in relation to the anti-feminist sentiments that will continue to grow, obviously, because there is a polarization of society at the moment with the, with the rise of the far right. Um, yeah, I'm afraid I can't, thank you so much for raising um, Guatemala, I'm afraid I can't really give you any informed opinion on what's happening in Guatemala either, it's, as you know, it's an incredibly complicated uh, situation, um, and um, what I would say is I think it, it, it draws attention, I think we've seen this across the three presentations, it's a, it's a sort of a theme I think that connects all of the presentations, is, is the strength of the right, uh, the Latin American right, and um, and, um, and that's quite fundamentally different to the context of the early, the pink tide of the early 21st century, when the right-wing governments were widely discredited um, through structural adjustment and neoliberal reform, and when left governments were able to come in and really articulate a very clear vision of the future and a very clear um, um, path towards an alternative form of development, which of course took different shapes in different contexts, but I think the, the strength of the right, and particularly the far right, is quite fundamentally different to what we saw 20 years ago. Um, and of course, that's a global trend. Um, we see that in Europe, we saw that, we've just seen it in Holland, we're seeing it across, you know, in Vox. I think there's a lot of parallels between Spain and Vox, where the Spanish um, feminist movement in Spain is very strong, and you see a, you see a very virulent uh, far right response, reactionary response. So I think it just makes everything far more volatile and far more dangerous, quite frankly, um, today. And I think the, the possibilities of dictatorships from, uh, you know, reappearing in Latin America are, are very real now, very real. Um, you know, you see presidents like Bolsonaro and Mele, who openly um, cast, openly celebrate um, dictatorships, winning significant um, portion of votes. So I think it, it speaks to a wider issue around democracy in Latin America and, and this global perhaps global breakdown of, of liberal democracy, quite frankly. Um, not wanting to extend too much away from Guatemala because it has its own characteristics, but I do think that's a theme that, that is very um, powerful. Thank you. Uh, Enzo. Um, yeah, 
what are the economics? So, so the, the left is always clear about what it's against and what it's for. You know, that old saying, de propuesta por um, de protesta propuesta. Um, if it's not extractivism, uh, then what? Good project. It can't just be spend more. What's the productive economic element that the left is kept to? Good question. How about put it back here? Okay, now everybody's raising their hands by now. Thank you. Uh, I have to I let one colleague ask a question. I have, to, I, have to, I have to let Lord <laughs> ask a question. especially in rural communities in the Amazon. 
how these new, I mean, these new needs are going to cope with the necessity of conservation, mitigation, adaptation, especially with the role, the key role that indigenous communities have in, in those areas. And what is the left going to do regarding that? Is there any agreement that they are willing to follow? Or, is, or are they not actually paying that much attention to them? Okay. We will turn it to, to the panel. Uh, okay. Uh, oh, there are so many interesting questions. I'm trying to answer to most of them, but maybe I won't be able to answer to all of them. So, is there what, what is the question again? Enzo. Enzo, thank you for your question. It's, it's quite interesting. Uh, well, I don't really agree with, with what you said because you mentioned that uh, during Lula's first government, he was investing in uh, like uh, this um, sustainable economy in the Amazon. But actually, if you look at PPC Dan, which was the ma major uh, environmental policy for the Amazon, uh, PPC Dan was supposed to invest in inspection actions and in the creation of uh, protected areas in the Amazon and also in the sustainable economy, So, which is very interesting to curb deforestation in the long term because, I mean, you have to give other economic options for local people to live. Uh, but actually, uh, the evaluations of PPC Dan uh, says that uh, the program was made uh, especially successful in creating uh, conservation units and also inspection actions, but it was not really successful to offer and to think about uh, new uh, sustainable economic ways, local economic, economic ways. Um, so I think there are like some uh, small um, advances, like most of the ages, so the government would pay, uh, like, what is the name in, in English? Like, it, anyway, you would compensate local families who uh, work with uh, sustainable uh, activities, but it was not like a big thing. And right now, like, the model for the Amazon, by then, it was like, just let's build, let's build this huge infrastructure projects, like highways, uh, roads, and hydroelectric uh, dams. And I think, right now, the model, the model is quite the same. I don't think there is like a big discussion about how to develop um, a sustainable local economy in the Amazon right now. I mean, there, are, there is this discussion, but it's not very strong. Basically, the government is still investing in inspection policies and trying to create conservation units. And one of the reasons is that is because when I interview these bureaucrats, they don't really know how to do that. It's really easy to understand how you do like inspection actions and how you create conservation units, but how you like, it's, it's much more tricky and complicated and complex to really create like a new model of a sustainable economy for local people. So I don't see many um, uh, progress in that area either. either. So another question, uh, someone asked about uh, how come, I think it's really interesting when we see, oh, sorry? Go ahead. Okay. I think when I show that map, I think it's very uh, interesting uh, and intriguing when you see that uh, most of the Amazonian um, states, they voted for Bolsonaro. And actually, Bolsonaro is really strong uh, in, this, in, the Amazon, in the states of, from, of Amazon, Amazonia. And the reason for that is because uh, the agribusiness is really strong there right now. So the, the new frontier, frontier of uh, pasture and 
agribusiness right now in Brazil is in the north of the country where the Amazon is. So when you see who voted for, Bolso for Bolsonaro in the Amazon, it's major, uh, this uh, agribusiness. And usually, actually, there is a study that uh, show that uh, the, the municipalities who voted uh, the most for Bolsonaro are the municipalities where the deforestation is the highest. So there is, because they, I mean, for them it's really interesting because they went to the forest, and if Bolsonaro say that he's going to uh, uh, flexibilize and weak uh, inspection policies and all this kind of stuff for this kind of voters, it's really interesting, so. Well, I guess that's all for now, I'll give some. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, thank you so much. Um, so just very quickly on, on dollarization. Yeah, absolutely. Dollarization is a huge, a huge issue in Ecuador. Uh, Ecuador, the, the economy was dollarized in 2000 um, very quickly, with um, the guidance of the IMF once again um, after the financial crisis in, in 1998 and 1999. Um, and um, and if you look back at the charts on migration, you'll notice the first wave of migration happened after dollarization. It was devastating uh, at the time for most people. Um, and there was a massive outlaw of migration, and that was connected to global issues as well. Um, so I think dollarization generally as a kind of monetary policy is, 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 a, is, is, is like a straitjacket um, in terms of sort of development. Um, ceding control of the monetary policy to the Federal Reserve, basically losing control of any kind of influence over the exchange rate. So I think it, it does bring, it has brought in Ecuador price stability, but that's come at a real cost um, in terms of, let's say, thinking about industrial policy or trying to bring about any kind of structural transformation. I think Correa toyed with the idea of, of abandoning it in his early, early years in office, and I think he could have, because he was so popular, but then he, he, you know, he, he, he didn't do that, and I think Ecuador stuck with it. It's of course popularized through the press, you know, the press always write very, very favorably around dollarization and how it's wonderful at keeping prices down. Um, but I think in terms of a macro economy, it's a disaster. It's like a straitjacket for, for a, developed, a country in the global south. Um, and of course now Argentina is, is talking about uh, you know, uh, following the same policy. Um, and then that links, really links to um, Duncan's question it's, it's, and, and Laura's question as well. I think it's absolutely, I mean, the challenge is enormous, isn't it? Quite frankly, you know, I've, I've taught on James's uh, brilliant uh, development course here, and we look at the history of, of development in Latin America, and we see efforts at um, industrialization in the 1950s and 1960s, and you know how they hit their limits generally, and then the reverse, and so on and so forth. You know, we, we can see in the case of um, well, Brazil most clearly, but also in, in, in Chile as well. You know, the power of the elite, the class class power, you know, blocking any kind of reforms. Agro-industry in particular is, is hugely influential in, in Ecuador. So I think one of the interesting things, you know, trying to think about it on a more positive note, is think about Latin America as a really inspirational place for innovation and creativity. Um, and, and we see a lot of that, actually, in terms of you know, ec economic policy broadly defined. Um, you know, in Ecuador, the Constitution, the 2008 Constitution, enshrined, you know, reorientates development around Buen Vivir. So it kind of looks at a totally different, at least you know, discursively, and opens up space for actually rethinking development altogether. So I think it's not surprising that you know many post-development thinkers like Alberto Acosta, you know, come from Ecuador, come from Latin America, have a different vision of development, which isn't necessarily based on industrialization, structural transformation. It's about something.
Um, so I think in Ecuador, there's, there's, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a very small but expanding agroecology movement. What was interesting about the Yes to Me initiative was that the argument was, of course, if we, if we vote to, um, and just to clarify, it was successful, so it was backed in, in elections in August. So um, the, the 60 to 59% of the voters supported this initiative. And a lot of, a lot of the, the discussion there was around connecting it to redistribution and saying, look, if we're going to lose 12% of um, total oil production, which is what Yasumi accounts for, but, uh, more or less, then we need to think about redistribution in a different way. So I think it's connected to redistribution of wealth, income, land, water, um, and trying to really, I would argue, um, leverage this incredible environmental consciousness that's emerged in Ecuador over the last 20 or 30 years, which I think is expressed in the Yasumi Initiative, and thinking about you know, green, a Green New Deal, or you know, just transitions, or degrowth, or eco-socialism, or whatever it might be. Um, that's what I would, you know, that's where I would go. Uh, but of course, we come up against these massive challenges, you know, that we've seen um, throughout the, the, the development of Latin America, you know, ever since it was inserted into the capitalist economy in the, in the 16th and 17th century. So I don't think any of this is easy, but I do think that Latin America is really inspirational in that sense and, and has lots of um, incredible ideas and possibilities, even if when they're incorporated into state policy, they're often um, de-radicalized and you know, watered down. I want to give the last word, and therefore I'll ask a little question to Melanie and to Anna, if I can. And, and that's that it seems to be very precarious, the government of Lula. And just by a very small margin, if anything, things are moving since since he came to power. And in Chile also, it seems to me that when we think about a right that is actually mobilizing against um, many of the ideas of the urban feminist movement, um, what are the chances that power can be used in Brazil and in Chile to consolidate uh, a, a direction towards the left in the face of what we're witnessing elsewhere? Um, yes, uh, thank you. That's a very good question, and obviously there's a, so there's a lot of factors to consider, but um, I think perhaps there's one positive element, is that there are continue, there are continue uh, very strong social movements, and there's a strong left in Chile, um, a left that is not an old left, that is a new left, um, that is represented by the, by the character of Gabriel Boric, and he still has decent popularity, let's put it that way, not good, but decent. Um, so that still exists, uh, but you're right, there is a rise of the far right. My sense of Chile is that because we have the, the referendum on the 17th of uh, December, where we're going to vote this new draft of the Constitution, all the polls are indicating that the draft is going to fail again. So we will end up with the old constitution or the current constitution. My guess is because the polarization of, of the political system is not fitting any ideas that the civil society are expressing. 
nothing is actually changing. It's not changing much with the current government. And because of the short periods of governments we have in Chile, only four years, it's unlikely that many things are going to change. I wouldn't be surprised if there is a switch into the far right in the next election. But at the same time, I don't think they will have long-term success unless they use old-fashioned uh, tools like the military and um, authoritarianism in a more straightforward way, which I, 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 I don't, it would be very surprising in the case of Chile, but not impossible because nothing is impossible. So I think those scenarios need to be managed to understand the balance of power. Um, if we just think about power as holding the power of the state, because as you were saying just before, um, national elites continue to be the same, and they haven't changed with this progressive government, um, and the economic model has not shifted in, a, in any other direction than neoliberal austerity, or maybe less austerity, but a continuation of neoliberalism. Thank you, and Anna, the last word to you. Oh, that's a very interesting and complex question. Uh, so I, I agree, I think the situation of the local government is very precarious in terms of political support. So what the working parties, uh, some of the working party leaders are saying is that uh, they, they will have to uh, 